Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. My name is Nathan Woolley. I am the curator of the exhibition Celestial Empire. Um, meeting here at the National Library, and as we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land that we are now privileged to call home. Tonight is the last lecture in this series that the National Library of Australia has been presenting in collaboration with the Australian Centre on China and the World at the Australian National University. This is also, in fact, the last public event of the exhibition Celestial Empire, which will be ending this Sunday. Now, Celestial Empire and its public programs have been made possible through um, the very generous support through many partners. And I'd just like to um, name these partners, because without their support, um, the National Library of Australia is unable to do such um, wonderful exhibitions, if I do say so myself as a curator. <laughs> so first and foremost, we have to um, thank the National Library of China. It is their generous generosity with their objects and with their time that's made this exhibition possible. Our commercial partners include um, Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wanda One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, and TFEO Hotels. Our event partners, in addition to the Australian Centre on China and World, also includes um, Asia Society Australia. Our government partners are the federal government through the National Collecting Institutions Touring Outreach Program and the Australia-China Council of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and also the SDT government through Visit Canberra. Um, I'd also like to thank all of you for your support for the public programs um, of the Sestal Empire and for coming along this evening. Tonight we're very fortunate because we will be having Professor John Minford speak to us on one of the greatest novels in all Chinese culture. The work and achievements of Professor John Minford can only be described through the use of superlatives. I will try to limit them in my talk, but it's very difficult. He has been described very recently by an award-winning author as one of, the foremost, one of the foremost cultural intermediaries of our day. Professor Minford is a sinologist and literary translator. He is renowned for his translations of Chinese classics, such as The Story of the Stone and The Art of War. His translations from both classical and modern Chinese are celebrated for their skill of execution and their depth of emotion. He studied with scholars David Hawkes at Oxford University and Neil Turin at the Australian National University. John himself has taught at institutions in mainland China, Hong Kong, Australia, and New Zealand. He is currently Emeritus Professor of Chinese at the Australian National University and the Sin Kin Professor of Chinese Culture and Translation at the Hansing Management College of Hong Kong. John is an inspiring teacher. He is very committed and generous to his students, who always are very aware how fortunate they, have, fortunate they are to have him to share his insight and passion for Chinese culture. He instructs them in the same way that he translates with great feeling and humanity, a rare quality in modern tertiary institutions. When I was the coordinator of the ANU China Institute for many years, once a week, John Minford would teach a class outside my door in the small reading room we had there. I soon discovered it was impossible to get any work done when I knew John Minford was teaching outside. And so within two weeks, I had joined the class and was enjoying John's instruction for the rest of the semester. John's most recent work is a translation of the famous Chinese divination text, the Yijing, which I have brought along this evening 
and I might note, is available for sale downstairs tonight in the National Library of Australia bookshop. One eminent scholar of Chinese has written that this rendition of the I Ching will endure as a classic of the 21st century and beyond. Another eminent scholar has described this book as a work of art, but also very user-friendly. And I wonder if I might be so bold to suggest that this description, a work of art, but also user-friendly, is also an apt description of John Minford himself. So please join me in welcoming John Minford. Thank you. Well, I should follow that with a eulogy of Nathan Woolley, I think. But I think other, I better get down to brass tacks because, I mean, you know, um, I've got a lot of stuff to get through. I'm sorry we don't have enough handouts. Um, I'll, I will therefore try and talk in a more intelligible fashion. I was thinking I could rely on you just reading it off the page, but um, no such luck because we've run out of handouts. I'm so sorry. Let me begin by um, thanking Nathan for inviting me here and for saying how I have a great affection for the National Library. It's a great institution, and so far shows no signs of deteriorating. May it long last, because that's not happening on the other side of the lake. And I preface my remarks tonight with a, what I think is a very poignant quotation from the great Carl Gustav Jung, when he delivered a, a funeral oration for his friend, the great German translator Richard Wilhelm, who also translated the I Ching, and Carl Gustav Jung said, the universities have ceased to act as disseminators of light. I'm afraid that was true then in the 1930s. It's far more true now. And um, I'd say they now disseminate darkness, in fact. However, tonight, let's move on from that to what I think is a much more pleasant topic, which is um, the greatest novel in, in Chinese literature, perhaps one of the greatest novels in the world, The Story of the Stone. And... And I want to address today um, what I think is a really crucial issue, which is how was it possible that perhaps the greatest work in all of Chinese literature, poetry, fiction, whatever, emerged out of apparently nothing from an author who wrote nothing else about whom virtually nothing is known. How could something like that happen? Um, now, I have... I have to take a few shortcuts here. This novel, I could just spend the next 15 hours talking about it. It is the most superb work of fiction which creates um, an illusory world because fiction is, after all, illusion in the form of a dream. It calls itself in Chinese the dream of the red chamber or the dream of red mansions, Hong Lo Meng. And um, it, is a, it is a work which is, is both, at, both at the same time... Um, incredibly absorbing in its depiction of daily life and human emotion, but also incredibly um, moving in its, in its attempt to see through that veil of illusion to a deeper truth. So, you know, as, as the famous expression, Kan Po Hung Chan, looking through the red dust, but it looks through the red dust, having first examined the red dust in loving detail. Every single detail of life is there. So it's a very appropriate book to talk about at the end of this wonderful exhibition. I mean, I'm afraid I'm not a big fan of maps, but I mean, for me, there are too many maps because, you know, maps can, can go a little, little bit of map goes a, goes a long way for me. <laughs> I'd rather have a novel any time, but I mean, it is a wonderful exhibition and I was enjoying it very much. And um, I think this novel, if any work of literature captures 
18th century China, it's Hunglomeng. It is 18th century China. It's all there, from the ways to make tea, the ways to make love, the ways to do anything, really. It's all in that book. And um, what you make of it is really dependent on, on you, on what you want. To, it's the same as the I Ching. I have said on many occasions that Chinese culture begins with the I Ching and ends with Hong Lomong, you know. And I, 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 perhaps for better or worse, I've been involved in translating both. So I should be absolutely exhausted, and I am. And if I fall over, I shall ask my friends in the audience to carry me out with dignity. Um, <laughs> Anyway, you see, I've been pondering this question about how it was that this extraordinary book emerged out of nothing. And, of course, it's completely untrue. It didn't. That's the answer to my question. Um, I've got to find my other glasses because um, I have to sort of sometimes look at my audience because you're probably all in, reacting in horror to my rambling method of deliverance. I, I just always ramble, I'm afraid. Now, the thing is, this novel has been... a, a, a an object of obsessive interest in China ever since it was written. It still is. And people treat it like a kind of a corpse, you know. They, they like to put it, tear it apart and analyze it, but the one thing they don't do is to understand it and read it with sympathy. And they, 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 they specialize. There's a whole branch of study called Hongxue, which means the study of the red, right? The red chamber, right? And it's a, it's, it's a kind of... It is a form of pathological academic obsession with a novel which avoids talking about it as a novel at all. And, and you see, I think that in order to understand it, what we have to do is to get beyond that. And that's what I'm trying to do this evening, if you'll be patient. And I want to start by lifting out of my handout a short piece of prose which I only discovered very recently by one of the Manchu friends of the author. Now, I'm not going to say any more except to read you this very short extract because to me it was the clue to what I think is a revelation and um, my friend Jeremy Barme helped to translate this recently while we were working on this together and it's just called Wu Meng Ji which I think really should be translated as daydream you know it's, it's one of two essays written by this, this Manchu aristocrat from the Isingoro clan. He was a member of the imperial family and a close friend of the author. That's why it's relevant. And he wrote two little essays on dreams, which are completely ignored by everybody. But you know, if you actually bother to read these things, you start to see the, 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 the culture, the environment, out of which this novel grew. Because no, nothing, nothing comes out of nothing, you know. Sorry, a bit of a stupid remark. But um, anyway, this is a short extract from this wonderful essay. And it goes like this. In the summer, in the summer, in the summertime, I'd be just like old Su Dong Po, the great Song Dynasty poet. And after lunch, I'd lie down with a book in my hand. And before long, I'd have dropped off and was dreaming. As I awoke, I was in a daze, unsure of whether I was still in a dream or awake like a skiff on a vast sea. And this illusory body of mine enters the illusory realm, the dream that is human existence. And in this great dream, I am but dreaming still. And in my dream, I speak the language of the dreamer. I dream of enlightenment, and I dream of the fulfillment of dreams. How can I know where this illusion will ultimately take me and where it will end. And reading this, 
one, if one knows the novel, the story of the stone, Hong Lamong, one immediately recognizes the vocabulary, one recognizes the whole mindset out of which this novel grew. These are his, these are his buddies, these are his drinking friends. And he knew a whole bunch of the Manchu aristocrats, the author. And they wrote poems and, and essays and so on, which have been largely ignored. And now I think it's time to revisit that whole little world and to see it for what it was, a very special little enclave within Chinese culture, which produced the greatest masterpiece in the entire history of that culture, of that literature. Um, well, let me just backtrack a little bit. Um, who are the Manchus? Who are the Manchu bannermen? Now, I know that um, Professor Barne gave a very learned discourse earlier on in this series on Manchu identity and the bannermen and so on. So I won't, I won't get stuck on that, because otherwise we'll be here all night. Um, but suffice it to say that the author of this novel, Cao Xueqin, um, was what we might call an honorary Manchu. His family had served the Manchu cause for several generations, going back to the, to the years before the Manchu invasion of China. And um, so they, they were accorded the status of Manchus. They were actually called bond servants of the imperial family. And later on, they, they were absorbed into one of the, one of the Chinese banners of the imperial household. And so they were, although they were ethnically Chinese, um, they, they, they had the status of, of Manchus. It's a bit like the Japanese going to South Africa, you know. They were called honorary whites. Well, it's not very like that, but anyway. They were Manchu, honorary Manchus. So, for example, to give you very concrete examples, in the Tsao family, the women did not bind their feet because Manchu women were not allowed to bind their feet. And... Um, they, they performed all, so, all sorts of other daily rituals that were typical of Manchu families, dropping on one knee and so on, Qing'an. All, and, the, and the book is full of that kind of stuff. And so they were, to all intents and purposes, Manchus. And all their friends were Manchus. I mean, even the author's grandfather, Cao Yin, he was very close to the Kangxi emperor. And all of, you know, a lot of his friends, I won't say all, it's an exaggeration, but a lot of his friends were Manchus. And I think we're immediately here face-to-face with the fundamental um, paradox of this situation that the greatest work of Chinese literature was actually written by someone who was fundamentally Manchu. And I think what, what we have here is the most interesting um, phenomenon which, which um, runs through the whole of Chinese, Chinese culture, really. I mean, it's a very, very old culture. We all know that, and it's all wonderful, and I'm supposed to which I don't, actually. But, I mean, you're supposed to think it's this fantastic endless sort of eternal object. Actually, it's not. I mean, every culture, every civilization, every language, every literature has a tendency to stagnate. And one of the wonderful things is when those cultures and literatures can absorb new life, new influences, new energies from outside. And, of course, European culture has been like that, you know, all along. And Ezra Pound was one of the first to really articulate that idea when he said that translation is the lifeblood of European literature, of course it is. And, and um, it circulates, it, it, gets the, it gets the qi flowing within that culture. Now, um, the Manchus, when they first arrived, obviously knew very little in the way of Chinese, but during the Kangxi reign, uh, that, that started to change. Kangxi himself was a very ardent student of things Chinese. And um, in particular, he was interested in that big book there, the I Ching, and used it to make very important decisions of state. So he was, he was a very key transitional figure 
in the way in which the Manchus started to become part of Chinese culture and started to write in Chinese and started to, to be Chinese, really. And, of course, um, part of being Chinese is to write poetry because everybody in China writes poetry. It's a bit like doing the crossword puzzle. You don't have to be, a, you don't have to be Wordsworth or Shelley or Byron to be a Chinese poet. You just have to have a diary handy or an, or an iPhone and just jot down something in the appropriate poetic form, which you had to learn as part of your exams anyway. So let's not make a big thing about being a poet. And, and so, so these Manchus started to become poets. And it so happens, and I've chosen one of them, that one of the greatest of all Chinese poets, and I say that meaning from the very beginning to the very end, uh, 1911, um, was a Manchu, and his name was Nalan Xingde, and he was a, he was a very high-born Manchu aristocrat. I happen to have the pleasure of visiting the palace in which he grew up in Peking just a few weeks ago. It became later the residence of, of Madame Sung Ching Ling, that gangster's mole who became the sort of pet idol of communist China. Her husband gave her a revolver as a wedding present. That gives you some idea of the nature of this extraordinary lady. Anyway, she was moved into this wonderful palace, and that's where Nalan Xingde grew up. And you see, he, was, he only lived to the age of 30. He was about the same age as Keats when he died. But he wrote a small quantity of the most wonderful, what they call lyric verse, the poetry. And um, I've given you some examples here. I'm only going to read one because, you know, I'm going to run out of time very quickly. But if you've got a, if you've got a handout, you can turn to, um, to page um, three. If you haven't, I'll try and read this so that you understand it without. It's perhaps his most famous poem. And um, it goes like this. The fire in my heart is turned to ashes. I feel like a monk, only my head is still unshaven. Oh, poor heart, how wind and rain have worn you out. How partings from friends, dead and alive, have torn you to pieces. This orphan candle seems like an old friend. There remains one thing alone that keeps me from a complete awakening love in the ashes of my heart. I mean, that's a, it's a very, very wonderful poem in Chinese, and that's a rather inadequate translation by a very interesting man called John Wu, who published his translations under the pen name of Teresa Lee. Gives you some idea of the kind of gender ambivalence of this whole genre of poetry. And he was a very famous um, uh, figure in, in Guomindang, China. And I think he was the uh, KMT ambassador in the Vatican, I'm not sure. He was certainly a Catholic and a, a, very, uh, a very eloquent one. And he translated... I've, I've heavily revised his translation, I have to admit. Um, but this poem, this whole poet, I mean, is so close to the, to the mood of the story of the stone that, in fact, for, for a long time, people believed that he was the model of the main character uh, of the novel. The main character of the novel is a young man by the name of Jia Baoyu, a very, very um, complex adolescent who, likes, who loves boys and girls, who loves more or less anything. You know. He's in love with love. I think that's what they used to say in the 60s. And he's, uh, he's this extraordinary, uh, androgynous, very beautiful young man who likes to consort with actors, preferably female impersonators, and sing-song girls and people of that ilk. And when, he, when his father finally realizes that that's what's going on, he more or less beats him to death. And, but he grows up during the 120 chapters of this novel. To, he grows up experiencing all the pains and frustrations of love 
and all the frustrations of growing up itself in a huge family that's falling apart at the seams and eventually, um, you know, sees through it all and becomes enlightened and wanders off into the snow singing a mad song to become a sort of Zen monk. Well, I mean, that's the bare bones of the story. I'm sorry, I've kind of, it's a real spoiler, that. But, I mean, um, you know, he doesn't... I I once said to my son on the way in, this was many, many years ago when they were showing a film about this novel at the then Chinese Embassy Art in Watson. And I was driving in from Yass with my young son. And he said, what's the film about, Dad? And I said, well, it's about a young man. And I gave him the... And eventually he turns into a monk. And my son misheard me. I thought I said chipmunk. So throughout, throughout the movie, he kept saying, Dad, when does he become a chipmunk? Well, he doesn't become a chipmunk. He, becomes, he doesn't even really become a monk. He just wanders off into the void. And that's the essence of the story. It's about somebody um, who you know, sees through the illusion of human emotion, but having experienced it to the full. I mean, it's not like a kind of stereotypical Buddhist novel. It's not at all. It's what you might call a Taoist novel because, as you know, Taoists, unlike Buddhists, they revel in the world before seeing through it. I mean, they, they make sure they get the best out of it both ways. They've got a bob both ways, you know. And, and that's a typical Taoist philosophy. I mean, re- read Lin Yutang, you'll hear all about it. So, so this, this, this Manchu, I mean, here's a guy, um, you know, Lan Singh, who could ride out there with the best. I mean, he was a good horseman. He was a great archer. He could do all the right Manchu things. And yet he could write this extraordinarily sort of um, heavily laden poignant, lyrical poetry. I mean, it's all like that. It's, it's utterly heartbreaking. And it's supposed to be because his, the, the young woman he loved to pieces died very young. And there's, there's an absolute flood of biographies coming out now. They're all like Milton Boone romances about the, the young poet Nalan Singhda and you know, his love life and so on. And they're all rubbish. But his actual poetry is really amazing and worthy of being better translated than it has been. Now... Um, so, so you see, he was a friend of, of the author's grandfather. In fact, Cao Suichin's grandfather, Cao Yin, was, was, a, was a host to the whole, a whole range of both Manchu and Chinese men of letters. And, um, and in, that, in that respect, he, was, he reflected exactly the reign of the emperor Kangxi because Kangxi was the first Manchu emperor to really bridge that gap between the Chinese and the Manchus. And he studied very hard to understand Chinese culture. Um, now, um, what, what interests me this evening, and I'm trying to cut out the sort of cut the fat off the bone, if you like. What interests me is to take this idea further, and it's never really been done. You see, it's it's a, it's a new thing. People are interested in Tao Suichin's Manchu friends in order to find out when he was born and when he died. Nobody agrees on that. You know, still to this day, they don't know when he was born, when he died. So when they were trying to talk about having a, 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 a centenary, I mean, no, it would be um, 300 years after his birth or after his death, the British Museum contacted me and said, would I advise them on a, a big exhibition at the British Museum? And I said, you better be careful because nobody actually agrees on when he died. So you might pick the wrong year and then you'll be in serious trouble. So they don't know anything about this author at all. You know, they don't know when he was born, when he died. Um, they don't even know who his father was, for sure. And... Um, all they know is that he had a few Manchu friends, a few Bannerman friends, high, high-ranking members of the imperial clan, the Isinguro clan, and, that, and, and they, they mention him in their poems. 
So then immediately these, these scholars start rushing around reading the poems, not in order to read the poems, but in order to try and get a handle on when he was born and where he went where and to use it as biographical material. And that's all we have. And um, so, so they've kind of ignored them as people in their own right. They've ignored them as writers as well, and they've just used them as carcasses from which to extract some sort of factual maggot from time to time in order to feed, you know, the, 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 the industry of Hongxiev of this novel's um, appalling um, uh, scholarly um, obsession. So um, I think that what I want to do now is to, is to skip to some of the, of the poems that these people wrote. There were two brothers, you see, called Dunchang and Dunmin, and they were very, very um, um, high-ranking Manchus. And um, they used to meet up with, with, with the author, Tsai Sui Chin, from time to time. They'd, they'd go off and have picnics and things like that. And um, I, want to, I want to go straight to a particular occasion when um, um, they went, one of the brothers, Dun Chang, went with the author to visit his brother, his own brother, Dun Min, in the villa where he lived on the outskirts of the Manchu city near a lake called Taipinghu. And the, the other brother was not there. And, and so Dun Cheng found himself with his friend Tsai Sui Chin. And he describes this in great detail, that Tsai Sui Chin was absolutely dying for a drink. I mean, the one thing we know about him from almost every poem written about him is that he really liked to drink a lot. I mean, and when he wanted to drink, he really had to drink. You know the feeling. And I mean, he would, he, it's known that he would just simply hand over a chapter of his novel in return for a bottle of wine. And, and usually the person would never bring it back. And he'd have the wine and then realize he'd lost the chapter and he'd have to rewrite the chapter all over again from memory, you know, which is why the novel is such a mess, basically. It's full of contradictions. It's full of textual variants and people's names change from one chapter to the next and so on. But, I mean, the point is that um, his friends saw this as a very endearing quality in him. And if I can just find um, the actual... Quotation. Um, yes, it's on page 10. I'm sort of jumping around, but I always do. Dun Chang, in a long preface to one of his poems, writes of meeting Tsai Chin near his brother Dun Min's villa, the Elm Garden, near Taiping Lake, in the southwest corner of the inner Manchu city. It was an autumn morning, a rainy day, and windy, and bitingly cold. My brother Min did not come out. He might, he might have been in there, but he didn't come out when they knocked on the door. So they walked off into the suburbs of Peking on a very cold autumn morning, and they got, they got to the brother's house, and he wasn't sort of answering the bell. And Swetin was in serious need of a drink. You know, it's early in the morning. I mean, let's, let's, let's not beat about the bushes. It's, it's before breakfast kind of thing, you know, and he really needed a drink. So I pawned my sword... So they went, he went off into the nearest village and, and took his sword out and, and pawned it to buy some wine. And we drank. Suetin was absolutely overjoyed and wrote a long poem to thank me for it. And then I wrote this in reply and he, he gives his own poem. Um, and in the poem he talks about Tsai Suetin bursting out in joyful laughter, rap, tapping a stone on the ground and improvising a high-spirited poem. This little vignette gives us a vivid image of the man and of the lifestyle of Tsai Sui Chin 
and his aristocratic Manchu friends. Concerning Cao's abilities as a painter and as a poet and painter, the Dun brothers leave us with a few suggestive comments. His verse had a weird... You see, we don't have any of his verse. I mean, we don't have anything that this man, this greatest genius in the history of Chinese literature... You know, we have nothing other than this novel. It's the most extraordinary state of affairs. No poems, no paintings, no nothing. No dramas, no letters, no prose essays, nothing at all. They tried to produce some stuff and it all turned out to be forgeries, you know. Um, he had a, his poetry, which they had read, had a weird quality like that of the ghost-haunted Tang poet Li He. From his novel, we can see that Tsar's you can see Tao's extraordinary versatility with all the various genres of Chinese verse and his delight in versifying. His paintings, because he also painted, according to his friend Zhang Yichen, was the ideal vehicle for his romantic notions, inspired as he was by the hills and streams outside his door, by the flowers and birds he saw in front of his home. He also played the seven-stringed chin, what Van Gulik calls the Chinese lute, with great skill. Um, now, for me, after having immersed myself a bit in what these Manchu guys were doing, and I mean, there are about three or four of them, um, I found myself going back to, to the novel and realizing, my goodness, this is part of the same world. It hasn't come out of nowhere. It's part of this little world. And, and of course, the world on which these Manchus modeled themselves was in fact the world of an earlier group of um, free-living, free-thinking, free spirits called the Seven Sages of the Bamboo Grove. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but it sounds like a great name for a pop band, you know, the Seven Sages of the Bamboo Grove. But I mean, they were this wonderful collection of people who wrote poetry and gathered under trees and play, played music and drank and took drugs and all the kind of things that you did in those days in the third, fourth centuries. And they became legendary, you know, the seven sages of the bamboo. And you, we know that these people idolized them because they used to have their names. You know, one of the things you can find out about Chinese men of letters very quickly is that their names give you clues to their character. And Tsai Sui Chin, although we know nothing about him, we know that one of his names was Meng Ran, which was, I dream about Ranji. Ranji was one of the seven sages of the bamboo grove. So basically, he aspired to be like that person, and that we know. And that tells us a huge amount. It's like a cryptic clue in a crossword. You know? I mean, from that we can, we can immediately realize that these people modeled themselves on the sort of eccentric, zany, neo-Daoist um, seven stages of the bamboo grove. Now then, then we come to the more interesting question, which is why and what did it mean? And there are various answers to this. One is that simply these were impoverished Manchus who just were down and out layabouts and all they wanted to do was to drink and make merry. But there is a more interesting angle, which is that they lived, all of these people, lived through some very dangerous times. I mean, it's not, it's not a recent phenomenon um, that, that China has become a police state. I mean, this has been happening for, for centuries, you know. And I mean, to live in the second half of the 18th century, it was not all roses, you know. The police were after you all the time in case you said something inappropriate. And, uh, you know, my, my most hated emperor, of course, is Yongzheng, because he, he brought about the downfall of the Tsar family, thanks to a, a, a palace rivalry between various princes. I won't go into that. But Qianlong, the big 
the big guy who came after, who ruled for, you know, the whole second half of the 18th century. I mean, downstairs is, like, full of Qianlong stuff. I mean, he was also an absolute, um, you know, um, he ran a police state, basically, and he was always picking on people for possible references, you know, to anti-Manchu sentiment and so on. So these, these, um, these Manchu noblemen were very nervous about the situation because, you know, they just were, lived in constant fear that one of them would be just hauled out and accused of having sympathized with the wrong prince or the wrong you know, cause and simply be um, exiled to some horrible island you know, off the south coast of China, and that would be the end of them. So they were very, very nervous. And, and um, it was actually Arthur Whaley who suggested that one of the reasons why these people, like my author and his Manchu, Manchu Bannerman friends, one of the reasons why they played up the whole sort of eccentric, you know, was so that nobody would take them seriously as genuine people involved in the political world. And I think, I think that's quite an interesting idea. But I think there's also another aspect to these people that I, that I find more important, more interesting, which is that they were, they were on the sort of um, cusp between being Chinese and Manchu. They, they wrote in Chinese. They didn't write their poetry in Manchu. They wrote in extremely eloquent Chinese. And, um, and they were... Um, but at the same time, they were very much Manchu. And um, I'd like to draw your attention, if you'd be patient with me, to some remarks made by some quite distinguished scholars about why it was that these Manchus were able to be such um, extraordinary um, manipulators of the Chinese poetic language. Um, I'll see if I can find this without um, spending too much time. It's um, towards the end of the section on that very first guy, Nalan Singda. And I particularly want to draw your attention to um, a scholar called... It's on page two, actually. A great scholar called Wang Guowei, who died in 1927. He committed suicide. He was a Manchu loyalist and therefore very much going against the tide of early Republican China. And when he saw how things were falling apart, he walked into a lake in Peking and drowned himself. But he was one of the greatest scholars of his time. And he had this wonderful remark in his little study on Chinese poetry called Renjian Sihua, where he says, he talks about Nalan Singda, the poet I just read to you a poem by, and he says... Xingda was able to be so genuine and moving, to use the eye of nature to observe and the tongue of nature to articulate feelings because, as a Manchu, he had not yet been steeped in or infected by Han Mori's. So this is a very, very penetrating analysis of the situation. He's saying more or less what I said at the very beginning, which is that by virtue of being Manchus, these these figures were able to bring renewed vigor to a, to a culture that was sort of stagnating. And I think that's terribly true. I think that the reason, in fact, I'd go further than that and say the reason why the author of the story of the stone was able to create such a transcendent masterpiece that's written in the most wonderful Chinese was because, precisely because, he wasn't Chinese. Now, this would be regarded as heresy by, of course, 
the Chinese um, establishment today, just as it would be regarded as heresy to point out that the great poet Li Bo was, had Turkish origins, which I think is undeniable. And, of course, a lot of the Tang Dynasty vigor came precisely from the influence of, from Central Asia and from those lovely sing-song girls who sang all the latest pop songs from, you know, Turkestan and places like that. That was what kept the place alive, you know. And this happened again. Even the great storyteller Pu Sung Ling was supposed to have Turkish family background. And, you know, this belies the whole concept of Han, you know, the Han chauvinist theory of Chinese culture, which I, I have to say is, is, is untenable. And I think that they would be very reluctant to accept my argument that this is what makes the story of the stone unique in Chinese. But, I mean, I'm afraid... I can go on and prove it. I'm sure I shall spend what's left of my life trying to do so because I think it's terribly important because otherwise, how do you explain this extraordinary phenomenon? The Chinese produce lots of novels, you know. You've got The Three Kingdoms, you've got All Men Are Brothers, you've got, you know, that wonderful erotic novel, Golden Lotus. And so, but, I mean, they're nothing compared to The Dream of the Red Chamber, compared to The Story of the Stone. They are nothing. They are, they are naive. They're rather crudely written, and um, so on and so forth. And they're very Chinese. And suddenly you get this novel, and there's never anything like it afterwards or before. And, it, and it, things don't happen for no reason at all. And I think I'm beginning, rather late in life, to sense what it is that has caused this. And this is why I've, I've chosen the topic of and his Bannerman friends, because it gradually began to dawn on me that actually it grew out of this whole environment, these very special people who've never been treated seriously because, you know, there was a very anti-Manchu sentiment. And now, of course, that's beginning to change. People are starting to be proud of being Manchu suddenly after all these years, which is quite bizarre. But, I mean, you know, these things happen, fashions come and go, and probably by another 10 years it'll be something else, you know. But, I mean, I think that the time has come... To, to try this argument out. I'm finding it more and more convincing. Um, now, I want to try to um, give you a bit more of an idea of what these friends thought of him. And there's a rather nice poem on page nine by another of his Bannerman friends. Now, this guy, Zhang Yichuan, he wasn't a Manchu. He was what they call a Chinese Bannerman, a Han Jun. And it's very interesting because here in Canberra, we had amongst us for many years, and several of you would have known him, a very fine Chinese scholar by the name of Liu Sunren. And he was also a Chinese bannerman, a Han Jun. And these were Chinese people who were, I suppose you'd say, collaborators with the Manchus and were, were basically set up in banner organizations parallel to the Manchus and the Mongols and so on. And there were Chinese bannermen, there were even Russian and Korean bannermen. And um, this particular man, Zhang Yichuan, um, was, a, was a Chinese bannerman, and he was a good friend of Cao Xuechen's. And this is one thing he wrote on page 9, and it's, about, it's something he inscribed on a painting. Done. We haven't got the painting, we don't know what it looks like, but we know this inscription is by him. And it says, he loves to express his romantic notions, feng liu, with his brush. In his cottage, in the western suburbs, his quiet sanctuary. Outside his door, hills and streams inspire poetry and painting. Before his hall, flowers and birds enter his songs. He envies not the great Li Bo's court banquets. 
He regrets not the great painter Yen Li Ben's court summonses. In other words, this man, this genius, Tao Sui Chen, he, he wanted to have nothing to do with the official world. You know. He was a genuine um, recluse. I mean, he lived out in the, in the sticks. You know. And he was, not, he was not tempted. I mean, his family, his family had been ruined during the reign of the Emperor Yongzheng. His family, which had been you know, perhaps the richest family in China for several decades during the reign of Kangxi, they were great favorites of the Kangxi Emperor. And he, he raised them to positions of enormous wealth. And then when Yongzheng took over in the late 20s, I mean, he, he associated his family with one of the rival contenders for the throne and punished them severely and, and basically ruined them, took away all their money, their property, and so on. And that's how our author ended up in Peking, poverty-stricken, but with his memories of the incredible extravagance of his youth. The whole novel is sometimes called The Dream of Nanking because he, he grew up in Nanking in the south and um, in, in a family of untold wealth, but also a very cultured family. His grandfather compiled the complete poems of the Tang Dynasty, for example, and had a superb library and had friends who were writers and painters. So he grew up in this very cultured and very, very wealthy family and then suddenly crashed, you know, it all just disappeared, and he had to move up to Peking, where there were still one or two members of the family who still had, you know, small apartments in town, kind of thing. So he lived off them for a while, and then he moved out to a little, literally a kind of shack out in the out in the western suburbs of Peking, and supposed to have lived mostly on porridge, except that he did drink large amounts of wine. So I don't take that terribly seriously. Um, and the poem, the poem by his friend Zhang Yichun, ends with the lines. Which of the ancients can be compared to him? His free, untrammeled mind rides with the white clouds. And there again, this is, this is how his Bannerman friends saw him, as a, as a free spirit, as somebody who, as, as another poem says, when he walked into the room, it was like spring came in the door, you know. He, he just made everything come alive. And he was, you know, I was asked to write his biography for the so-called Berkshire Dictionary of National Chinese Biography. And I mean, to write a biography of this man is almost impossible because you know nothing except a few poems. And all we know is he drank a lot of wine, um, he liked to paint, and um, he, he was very poor, and um, he loved to play games. He was apparently a terrific player of games. We know that from, from again, anecdotal references from his Bannerman friends. He used to just like to sit there in his room, probably rather drunk, playing games, you know, probably games like Go or drinking games, probably. And um, he, he was also apparently, and this is absolutely um, credible, a great expert on Chinese medicine. And he used to sometimes um, go out into the hillsides out there culling herbs and then would mix up concoctions and so on for old ladies living in the village. I mean, this may just be anecdotal rumor, you know, but I mean, this is all we have. All we have is nothing except that we also have the greatest novel, perhaps, you know, in the history of world literature. And from that, certain crazy people managed to deduce facts about his life, which are completely fictitious, of course, because this is a novel, not a historical fact. Um, now, if we turn now from his friends to what he himself wrote about his intentions in writing this masterpiece, um, we have an extraordinary sort of apologia and I'd like to read you a little bit of that. It's on page 11. He writes, 
Um, had he made an utter failure of my life? Because he did. I mean, he had no job, he had no money. Um, he was married twice, but, you know, um, he died shortly after his second wife gave birth. Well, his wife had had an infant son, we don't know how old the son was, and the son died. And, you know, one of his Mantua friends said he died of grief at the death of his infant son. So his life was really, you know, nothing. No job, no money, no, no, no collection of poems, no surviving paintings. I mean, and, and yet, the most famous figure in, in Chinese literature. I mean, if the, if the Chinese didn't have this absurd Confucius Institute, they had the Goethe Institute, they'd have the Tao Tse Chin Institute, because he is the greatest single literary figure, I think, in the whole of Chinese literature. And yet, he had nothing, you see. So having made an utter failure of my life, I found myself one day in the midst of my poverty and wretchedness, thinking about the, fem <coughs> Sorry, the female companions of my youth. Actually, I don't have a drink of water. Thinking about the female companions of my youth. I mean, he was very, very keen on girls. I mean, obviously, from his novel, because the novel's all about girls. And the main character, the main, it says, there's a wonderful passage in the, main, in the novel where the, it says about the main character, if ever he was in pain, you know, all he had to do was to call out, girls, girls, and he was fine, you know, much better than Panadol. I mean, he just, you know, he believed that boys were just disgusting and, and girls were the thing. Of course, later on, he modified that view because he became, he became um, involved with boys as well as girls. But this is the main character. Now, we can't deduce from that that the author was like that because probably the main character is a composite of different people. But certainly, the novel is all about beautiful young ladies. I mean all of his girl cousins. They all move into the garden and live together and write poetry and lead this extraordinarily idyllic life, painting and drinking tea and writing poetry and having little flirtatious relationships with each other until the whole thing crashes. But, I mean, that's, that's the dream. That's the first half of the novel. Described in loving detail, every single, you know, moment is described. And they've all got endless numbers of servants. I mean, I think he has 12 maids. So to get up in the morning, I mean, you know, he can't even brush his own teeth. I mean, everything has to be done for him. You know, one maid will be putting on his underwear, and the next one will be putting on his whatever, his jacket and so on. And I mean, it's quite annoying, really, to read all this stuff. After a while, you get a bit tired of it. But I mean, that was the lifestyle. And, and then Crash. And of course, he wrote all this when he himself was in abject poverty, remembering with great nostalgia. I mean, it's the most nostalgic novel ever written. And the nostalgia for the past, the dream, the great dream of the past, of the glorious, the golden days when he lived in Nanking and was living in the lap of luxury. And now there's nothing left except, you know, uh, the coal, the, the embers in the grate and a cold bowl of porridge and an almost finished bottle of wine, you know. And where's the next bottle coming from? That was the, the life he was leading. So there and then I resolved to make a record of all the recollections of those days that I could muster, those golden days when I dressed in silk and ate delicately, when we still nestled in the protecting shadow of the ancestors and heaven still smiled on us. However unsightly my own shortcomings might be, I must not, for the sake of keeping them hid, allow those wonderful girls to pass into oblivion without a memorial. Reminders of my poverty were all about me. The thatched roof, the wicker lattices, the crockery stove. But these did not need to be an impediment 
to the workings of the imagination. So you see, this fits in so perfectly with, with, with the environment I've been evoking of these Manchu bannermen. They were all part of the same scene. They were all friends. They lived this kind of, in this sort of dream world. And that little essay I read earlier on about the daydream, you know, well, am I awake or am I dreaming? This, of course, goes all the way back to the great Taoist writer Zhuangzi. It's one of the main themes that comes again and again and again in Chinese literature, you know. And it's about, it runs through the story of the stone. It's one of the, one of the big themes in the novel. Now, another of these Manchu boys, Dunmin, the brother of Dunsheng, wrote a rather charming poem, which is just below what I've just read on page 11, in which he says, he's talking about his friend, Shaswe Chin, he's talking about our author. By emerald streams and dark green hills winds the path to the ivy-covered gate in the iridescent haze. His quest for poetry has taken him to lodge with the monk. To pay the wine shop bill, he sells his paintings. Yet another reference to his need to, for wine, you see. In the markets of Peking, his proud songs tell of his sorrows. His tattered dream of Nanking recalls the splendor of past days. New grief and old pain in abundance. A proud Drunken melancholy. That's just a typical um, one of the poems written by his Manchu friends. And um, apart, apart from these Manchu friends, you see, the novel itself um, accumulated a lot of commentaries from his family members. And it's very interesting because one or two people now writing in China are starting to put these two things together, which has never been done before, and saying these commentators who had funny names like Reddingstone or, you know, Old Croc, that's what these commentators, they love to give themselves funny names, you know, half a shoe or something like that. And then on the one hand they've got these people writing little notes in the margin of the hand-copied versions of the novel, saying like, oh my God, I remember Auntie Sansa, she was just like that. He's described her to the absolute perfectly, you know. I remember the way she used to talk over her afternoon tea. What a boring old lady. You know? That's the kind of thing they wrote. So we've got all this massive family annotations. And we've got these Manchu bannermen. And probably the people annotating, they were also bannermen. Because if they were part of Tsar's family, they would have been bound to be. And, you know, it's beginning to almost look like they might have been all part of the same scene. And maybe they were even the same person. Maybe because they're always arguing about who is Red Inkstone, for God's sake, a boy, a girl, an old man, a young man. But maybe he'll turn out to be one of these boys, one of Dunmin or Duncheng, who knows? Because there's an extraordinary coincidence in terms of the dates and so on. It's one of the great mysteries of this novel. This novel generates endless amounts of mystery. It's one of its great charms, you know. And my theory, which again is completely unprintable, is that the author was a very mischievous individual who deliberately left his novel unfinished in order to torment future readers and left, and left a kind of half-finished ending tucked away underneath the nappies at home. And, with, you know, and his wife, his widow, found it later and they all cobbled together a final ending. And, and I think there's a whole... I think it's one of the most extraordinary works of artifice ever, ever, ever to happen, you know, in the history of hum humankind. Um, 
And he keeps talking about the secret message of his novel. He keeps tantalizing his reader. You know, you don't really understand what I'm on about because there's a secret message there, you know. And don't think you understand it because the minute you do, you'll be wrong. You'll realize that you're wrong. Um, and the extraordinary thing about this novel is that it's, it's very playful. It's very light. It's very easy to read, really. And in Chinese, it's written in vernacular Chinese, not in classical Chinese. And, um, and, yet, it's, it's, it's very, and yet it's very deep. It's very, very, it, it, it raises some of those recurring issues in Chinese culture about, you know, the nature of reality, the nature of human emotion, and the nature of society, and the relationships within a family. These huge themes, all in, one, all in one novel, 120 chapters long, admittedly, with about 330 main characters and about another 500 minor ones. So, I mean, it, it is absolutely a sprawling great thing. Um, and... Um, I'm going to end because I want to, I must end anyway, because I'm just seeing on the computer here, it says 6.57, I can see very discreetly that I've almost run to the end of my time, and I think we're going to have drinks and snacks, which is far more important. Um, the, the, in the present day, there has been a wonderful scholar of this novel by the name of Anthony Yu, who sadly passed away nearly a year ago, and he came here a few years ago and and delivered the most wonderful speeches and so on. And he's written about this novel, I think, better than any living... Well, he's no longer alive. Any person of this present age. And um, I want to conclude by, by mentioning him and by, by saying in his words, you know, um, you see, from the bottom of page 14, the last paragraph there, the novel treats throughout its pages of the nature of passion and desire. It is a story that tries to tell the truth. It is fiction that does not falsify. Anthony Yu, in his penetrating study of the novel, quotes its concluding words, a quatrain whose author may have been either Tsai Suichin or Gao Er, who edited the last 40 chapters. And these are the last four lines of the novel. When grief for fiction's idle words, more real than human life, appears, reflect that life itself's a dream and do not mock the reader's tears. These are the last four lines of the novel. And um, Anthony Yu comments on that, I think very poignantly. He says, not to mock the reader's tears is to avow both the potency and illusion of fiction. And that, says Anthony Yu, that is great pity and wisdom indeed. And I'd like to leave you with those words because I think they're very powerful. Thank you very much.